ーラフイハーアーラフイフイフイハーフイフイアーラフイハーアーラフイフイフイハーフイフイアーラフイハーアーラフイフイハーフイフイアーラフイハーアーラフイフイハーフイフイハーフイフイハーフイフイハーフイフイハーフイフイハーフイフイハーフイフイハーフイフイハーフイフイハーフイフイハーフイフイハーフイフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイハーフイアイヌスピリッツ・シンゲン、The Living World of Chidiyuki's アイヌ・シン・ヨシュ、published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2011. Dr. Strong, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's a pleasure. Now, I wanted to talk with you because you wrote this book, Ainu Spirit Singing, The Living World of Chidiyuki's アイヌ・シン・ヨシュ、which is looking at the specific form of Ainu epic poetry, Kamui Yukar. Before we get into talking about that, could you talk in general about Ainu oral traditions and then where these Kamui Yukar fit into that? Yes, I'd be happy to do that. It's a big category. The Ainu culture was particularly rich in oral performance forms. One scholar counted 27 different genres of performance. But within that, one particular Performance form, Kamui Yokar, stands out for its understood antiquity. Because it's oral tradition, we can't date the texts definitively in terms of when they emerge, but it's considered that the Kamui Yokar are thousands of years old. Now, there are in Ainu tradition all sorts of oral expressions, performance forms, as I mentioned, like riddles and Tongue twisters that had to be said as quickly as possible, readings, prayers, laments. But there's a particular passion, I would say, within the tradition for narrative. And the Kamui Yukar are a form of narrative. They are stories of the Kamui, or what I like to call a spiritual being, but the word Kamui is often translated as God. The Kamui. Who are the subject of the Kamui Yukar stories are also the first person narrators of those tales. So we have a whole genre of stories in the Kamui Yukar that are tales of spiritual beings, gods, and told by them. In addition to those Kamui Yukar within narratives in Ainu tradition, You also have stories of human beings. <laughs> And the American scholar Donald Philippi, in his collection, Translations of Ainu Oral Traditions, divided the narratives into songs of gods, songs of humans. I thought that was very appropriate. The Kamui Yukar are the songs of gods. You also have the songs of humans, which are abundantly told in the genre of Yukar. The Yukar are epic narratives of human heroes, usually male heroes, although there is a subset, the women's Yukar, which tell of significant deeds performed by women. In contrast to that, the Kamui Yukar tell the stories of spiritual beings. In between those two categories, Kamui Yukar, songs of gods, Yukar, songs of humans, We have an additional genre called Oina, which are the songs of the culture hero who has human aspects but is nonetheless superhuman in a significant way. 
and was formative in the Ainu narrative tradition as the founder of the cultural patterns of the Ainu people. So we have songs of gods, songs of humans, and we have songs of the culture hero, Oena. All of these are metric forms so that they're metered and they sound musical in quality. The passion for narrative and Ainu tradition also included non-metrical accounts called uepeker, which are more like what we think of as folk tales. You mentioned that these are oral histories in, in the cases of the Kamuyukari stories of the gods. So these would be passed down primarily as a way of historical storytelling or religious practice, right. or what exactly was the purpose? The purpose of the Kamuyukari is only known hypothetically, but there is a strong argument made by scholars such as Churi Mashiho and also Kindaichi Kyosuke that they were originally female form of shamanic performance. The female shaman would be possessed by the spirit of the kamui and told that kamui story from the perspective of the kamui. I think in order to understand kamuyukar, it's really important to have a sense of, of what kamui are, how they were experienced and perceived. Almost all kamui are natural phenomena mostly animals, but there are kamui plants, also exceptional atmospheric phenomena like thunder or stars can be kamui. And there was occasionally tools very important to human life. A boat made from a tree was often considered a kamui. Also essential natural Entities that are important to human survival, water and fire, are kamui. So all kamui possess a power that is superior to powers of human beings. They're not necessarily more powerful than human beings in all respect, but they have abilities that we humans don't have. Also, the kamui are understood to have personhood. They can be communicated with by humans and they have thoughts and feelings in the same way that, not necessarily the same kind, but in the manner of human beings. So while a mountain can be kamui, it is not seen as an inert thing. It's understood to have a spiritual dimension and to have interaction with human beings. So the Kamuyuka ritually were probably a form by which the human community harmonized its relationship with the natural world. There are animals such as the bear, the wolf, the orca, telling the story of the Kamuyuka. In the Kamuyuka, at the end of the tale, the powers of that kamui yukar are almost always in a state of balance and there is goodwill between the humans and the kamui. Would it be inaccurate to think of kamui as somehow related to what we might think of as kami in Japan and then some of the animistic practices associated with kami worship in Japan? I think it is appropriate to do so, but the connection between kami and kamui is 
poorly understood. <laughs> For example, we don't know why those two words clearly seem to have a common origin or a relationship. And a number of the words in Ainu ritual have echoes in Ainu. For example, Anusa is part of Shinto worship. And the altars that are built for Kamui of shaved wood votive offerings is called Anusa-san. There are other examples of the linguistic parallels, almost homonyms, in the religious terminology of Ainu and Japanese. But we don't know why this is so. For me, <laughs> I want to say that I felt after I became acquainted with Kamuyukar and had become pretty involved in the traditions and had translated the 13 Kamuyukar of the Ainu Shinyoshu, I really felt I was beginning to understand what a Kamui is. I felt comfortable within the tradition, and I felt that there were affinities with the North American indigenous traditions, especially circumpolar peoples, their stories about the natural world and their perceptions of the spirits in it, the spirits of animals, the spirits of plants, was very similar. But I'm always a little puzzled about Kami. <laughs> I don't think, uh, well, you know, what's the relationship between their spiritual dimension and their appearance in this world? And do kami appear in this world? And if the sugi tree is, is kami, can I make an offering to it? I feel as though I don't have a clear understanding of the basic nature of a kami. <laughs> but I am much more at home with kami. <laughs> So you mentioned that some of these kamuyukar deal with animals such as bears. One of the rituals I understand was common in Ainu communities was the bear dance. And I'm curious, was there a relationship between right. these or, or more more specifically, how were these kamuyukar ritualized in Ainu communities? You, you mentioned that in some cases, the medium would tell the story, but was there a ritualized aspect to them? I hope I made it clear. If I didn't, I want to do it now. That the ritual aspects, the uses in ritual of the Kamuyukar have been hypothesized, but they have not been experienced. They weren't carried over into a time when they were recorded in an ethnographic way. So that when Chiriyuki heard Kamuyuka and she heard Lenny, recited by her family members, particularly her grandmother, whose name was Monash Nook, and her aunt, Ime Kanu, whose Japanese name was Matsu. They were famous storytellers and performers, and at night they would recite around the fire. So that was the context in which people of Chiriyuki's generation in the very early 20th century experienced Kamuyukar as stories told in the familiar setting of the home. So you mentioned this figure, Chiriyuki-e. Could you tell us a little bit more about her? Who was she? You mentioned that she was transcribing some of these Kamuyukar. And so could you tell us more about her? I'd be happy to. She was born in 1903 in the very southern part of Hokkaido, Noboribetsu, of Ainu parents. And she died in Tokyo in 1922. So she had a very short life indeed. And it's remarkable I think that someone so young accomplished as much as she did. 
she grew up as most Ainu families were at that time, hard pressed financially. The traditional life ways had to be given up because they were uh, not permitted. Salmon fishing was not permitted. Bear hunting in the traditional forms was not permitted. The Ainu people were trying to find ways to survive that fit their lifestyle, but were being forced onto rather hard-to-farm pieces, small hard-to-farm pieces of land and told by the Japanese to be farmers. So Yukie's family arranged to have her go to live with her aunt, who was actually trained by British missionaries and was a kind of missionary's assistant in Asahikawa. When she went to live with her aunt, by a stroke of really good fortune for history, her grandmother, Manish Nort, went with her. So as she lived in this place uh, 100 plus miles away from her native Nobori Betsu, she continued to be surrounded by oral Ainu in the Nobori Betsu tradition. And her grandmother and aunt were particularly noted within Ainu society for their ability as oral performers. She came to the attention of the Japanese linguist Kindaichi Kyosuke when she was 16. And Kindaichi, looking for um, what are called informants, I think, in fieldwork traditions, had been told by the British missionary John Batchelor that both Matsu, Kanari Matsu, and her mother Mona Shinoik would be good informants. So one evening, Kindaichi Kyosuke arrived at their little house in Asahikawa, and Chikabumi was the Ainu town near Asahikawa, and there he met Chiriyukie. She was proficient in, in Japanese, of course, very successful young uh, student, clearly able to read and write Japanese beautifully, and she knew Ainu. She could explain things to him, translate her aunt and her grandmother, although Kindaichi knew Ainu as well. But he realized that she had enormous knowledge, cultural knowledge, and he wanted to tap that. So after he left in due time, he sent her some blank notebooks and said, why don't you write down things from your Ainu tradition? anything you want in these notebooks. And Yukie quite rightly said, this will take some time. She first had to finish her schooling, which she did. And she said, I need to learn how to write Ainu. It's an oral language. So she learned from her aunt, probably. We don't quite know how she did it. She spent some time learning the Western alphabet and how it could be used to transcribe Ainu language. This had been done mostly by missionaries at that time. The, the English missionaries had transcribed Ainu and they had taught students in early Ainu schools in the earlier part of the Meiji period to write Ainu in Romaji, the Roman alphabet or Western alphabet. By the time Yukie was working on this project of learning the Western alphabet in order to transcribe Ainu, the Japanese authorities had shut down the missionary schools, uh, had stopped 
the training in Ainu language that the missionaries had sought to make available. But we think it's because her aunt had some background that Yukie was able to figure things out. And within three or four months, she began to write. And she filled notebooks with all sorts of genre of tales and songs and riddles. And she sent this to King Daichi. Uh, when King Daichi looked at it, he recommended in particular that she might want to make a collection of the Kamui Yukar. And she agreed that that made sense. And she set to work on creating a volume devoted to Kamui Yukar. And you mentioned that she dies very young. Do we know about that or why she died? We know something about that. She had a congenital heart condition. It was a mitral valve that was problematic. Little was known about it at the time, but her family was well aware that she had a weak condition, as they understood it. So when Kindaichi invited her to come to Tokyo as an informant and as an Ainu assistant to him with the offer that she would be able to learn English there at his home, but she would also have an opportunity to take care of his children <laughs> and help around the house. Her family, especially her father and mother too, were both opposed. They saw an opportunity, a cultural opportunity, but they were worried that it was too demanding for her. She went to Tokyo in May of 1922, and she died there in September. This summer heat probably exacerbated her heart conditions. She actually had just finished going over the proofs of the Ainu Shinyoshu manuscript that had been prepared for publishing on the night that she collapsed and died. So it was really her final act in this world was to create that for us. Kaido 150, Settler Colonialism and Indigeneity in Modern Japan and Beyond, was hosted at the University of British Columbia, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Musqueam First Nation. For more videos and information about Hokkaido 150, visit meijiya150.arts.ubc.ca slash Hokkaido 150. All music, copyright, Chikar Studios, and used courtesy of Okie Dub Ainu Band. Thank you for listening.